Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. In the previous program, I was talking about the appeal that Judaism has to many people and the appeal that Jews have to many people. In many cases, people find Judaism and Jews to be appealing because it is reasonably well known that the Jews have been God's chosen people. And what that means is, is that he is divinely involved in their lives. He is involved in their lives in a divine way, interacting with them, participating with them. And while he has performed many miracles within and through the Jews, he is continuing to do so in order to assert his identity, in order to fulfill his promises that he made previously. And a lot of people find it appealing to be involved or to participate in the things of Israel and the things that the Jews are involved in, because through doing that, they feel as though they are participating in what God is participating in that they can get involved with what God is doing. And if they do that, then people often feel as though they are getting closer to God because of that. Another thing that they find quite appealing is the opportunity to be blessed. There are many people who believe that if they bless the Jewish people, then God will bless them in return. The promise that was given through Abraham was that if you were to bless Abraham, those who bless Abraham will be blessed and those who curse Abraham will be cursed. There are many people who look at that and assume that this has to do with prosperity in their lives. But the fact is that he was referring to the coming of the Messiah, that it was the Messiah that he was referring to. The Messiah is the fulfillment of that promise. He is the blessing. And there are many people who have no idea what that means. They have no concept of that. They don't realize that the real blessing of God is the Messiah. They don't really identify with that, but that is a reality and that people are often motivated to become like a Jew, to participate in Jewish things, to do Jewish traditions or Jewish rituals, to participate in messianic synagogues of some kind in order to try to get blessed by God. And I know this because I've asked. I've asked people, why are you doing this? Why are you participating in this? And in general, the answers always come down to a simple, fundamental thing, and that is that they want to be blessed by God. I, of course, am not interested in that because I have already been blessed by my God. My God has already blessed me with all of the blessings in heavenly places. And so, to me, those things have no real value because I've already been blessed and I live according to the blessings that have been given And knowing that I have all that I need for life and godliness, there just isn't anything else that I find appealing. Now, in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul goes on to talk about the value of being a Jew. In verse 1, he says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect, first of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, there are many ways that we can look at this. The first way, the most obvious way, is to understand that the advantage that the Jew had, or an Israelite, the advantage that they had 
was that they had access to God, they had access to the living God, whereas others did not. He worked with Israel, he worked with the Jewish people exclusively in order to reveal himself to the world. And their advantage, the advantage that the Jews had, was that they had more access to him. They had access to the scriptures. They had access to the law of God. They had access to the prophets. This did give them an advantage, and it gives the Jewish people an advantage today that they have the scriptures if they are devoted to Judaism, which it is very unusual, actually, to find a Jew who is devoted to Judaism. But of those who are they have an advantage because they have exposure to the scriptures. They have exposure to the law and the prophets and the oracles of God, and so they have a greater opportunity to discover what he has revealed concerning himself and the Messiah. Now, it doesn't mean that it's always going to happen. It just means that there is a greater opportunity. Now, what I believe concerning this opportunity is that the real opportunity is found in going in the direction of a life of repentance and obedience, to go in this direction, to try and live in obedience to God. I believe that that can be an advantage because I believe that when a person really pursues that with their whole heart, when they really pursue that out of true sincerity, then they will eventually hit this wall in their life. And that wall is the discovery that they can't do it. So I believe that there is an advantage to a Jew in the sense that the more religious they are, the more that they try to be blessed by God through their repentance and obedience, the earlier, the sooner that they will hit the point of discovery that they cannot do it. And so they can reach the point of despair in their life where they can recognize that they have no hope outside of God's mercy. Now, understand that any religion can provide this. You don't have to be a Jew in order to experience this. There are many religions that people engage in that are focused on repentance and obedience. There are many religions that have their own systems of law, their own expectations of their members, their own requirements in terms of how you live and how you are to function And they have their own list of laws that you need to obey, and they may correspond to what you find in the law of Moses, but they may not correspond. They may be different ones. They may be additional ones. Regardless of that, there are many opportunities outside of Judaism to go down this road and hit this brick wall. And I think it's very important for people to hit that brick wall as soon as possible that it is an important thing, and for people to struggle with these issues can be of great value, because the more an individual struggles with trying to be holy, with trying to be righteous, the more that they will be able to appreciate his forgiveness and his mercy, because the more they will discover just how evil and how sinful they really are, and how much they need his forgiveness, how much they need his mercy. And so I believe that there is an advantage, and it's not exclusive to the Jews, but this has changed over the period of time because there are many groups today that use the scriptures that the Jews had, that they kept, that they were entrusted with. And this has helped people go down this path and eventually hit this wall of despair, of destruction in their own personal lives. And so there have been many opportunities for people to experience that, not just in Judaism, but also in different forms of Christianity that have evolved ever since the time of the Lord Jesus. Now, there are some other opportunities 
for people to consider that the Jews have an advantage. There are other opportunities. But you have to be very careful with some of these situations, with some of these scenarios. You have to be very careful with some of these because some of these are not correct, not from a historical point of view. From a theological point of view, even more so. But from a historical point of view, they are definitely incorrect and they need to be understood in that context. You see, what happens is is that people sometimes realize that there's something missing. They realize as they go through the scriptures that there are some things that have not really been disclosed. People can tell that there are some things that are not really there, but you know that they should be. Take, for example, when Nathaniel met the Lord Jesus. When Nathaniel met the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus said to him, Here is an Israelite in whom is no deceit. Nathaniel replied and asked him, How do you know me? And he said, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel replies by saying, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Because he said he was under the fig tree? No, you can tell that there are a few things missing in there. And there are passages throughout the New Testament that you can read that give you this impression, that give you this inclination, this suggestion that there are a few things that are assumed concerning what is written of. And that makes perfect sense because you can't write down everything assuming that people in the future are going to read certain things and not have the necessary historical background in order to fully appreciate those things. It's not possible to do that because the amount of content that you would have to document is incredible. And so it's very difficult to record everything in the scriptures and people discover this. They realize that there are a few things missing. One of the ways that people have been trying to fill in these gaps, one of the ways that people have been trying to deal with what they can tell is a few missing items in the scriptures, is they have been trying to involve themselves in rabbinical Judaism, believing that through studying rabbinical Judaism, they will be able to discover what these missing things are in the scriptures. A very good modern example would be the Passover There are many people who study the Passover, the rabbinical Passover, the Seder, that is provided today, and they have tried to overlay the Passover Seder with the circumstances and the situations, the conversations and the cups and the different things that the disciples were doing with the Lord Jesus during the night that he spent his last supper with them just before he was taken away, he was put on trial, and he was crucified. There are many people who have been trying to correspond the modern Passover Seder with the events that were taking place during the Last Supper. Unfortunately, this is not possible because there are some differences between the two descriptions. The description of the proper order to observe the Passover Seder versus the description that we have in the New Testament. And there have been many attempts to try to reconcile these differences. And the best description that I have seen from someone who I respect very highly concerning the history of Israel and the history of Judaism explained it this way. They said that the disciples didn't record everything correctly. And of course, that would make perfect sense. That would be a reasonable, rational explanation. But there is another explanation that no one has considered. And that is that the Passover Seder was established for the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread that took place 24 hours after the Passover meal. That evening, Jesus was dead. He was buried. He was in the grave. The evening where the Passover Seder was observed was the evening when Jesus was in the grave. 
And so those who have attempted to describe the Lord's Supper by comparing it with the Passover Seder are technically a day late and a law short. So you have to be careful with some of these attempts that people have tried to make in order to benefit from the work and the beliefs of the Jews, because there is an opportunity for errors to creep in to the Christian theology, to the lives of many people, unsuspectingly so. One of the other issues that's very difficult for people to appreciate is that rabbinical Judaism has evolved over time. You know, it's been 2,000 years since the Lord Jesus was here ministering. And since then, there has been a few changes in the way that rabbinical Judaism is exercised. Some of the beliefs have changed. Some of the rituals have changed. Practices have changed. Beliefs have been changed. There has been an evolutionary experience within rabbinical Judaism. The rabbinical Judaism during the 6th century BC, for example, is very different from the rabbinical Judaism of the 1st century BC, let alone the 1st century AD. The rabbinical Judaism of the 1st century AD is different from the rabbinical Judaism of the 13th and the 14th century AD. And the rabbinical Judaism of today is also slightly different from the rabbinical Judaism of the 14th and 15th centuries. And so please understand that there has been some evolutionary change. There are some things that are still the same, lots of things that are still the same. But some of these differences have been creeping into Christian theology as if they are historical. Well, they are historical, but only by a few hundred years, maybe, or a thousand years, maybe, or 1,400 years, maybe. But they are not historical in terms of the rabbinical Judaism during the time of Jesus. And so a Jew today... If you identify a Jew today and you suggest that because they are Jewish, they have a distinct advantage in understanding the New Testament, in understanding the gospel and the things that the Lord Jesus spoke of, actually that has changed to such an extent, whereas today a Jew can have a greater disadvantage than a non-Jew today in comparison to the Jew during the time when Paul wrote this, because the rabbinical Judaism has evolved. And so from a cultural standpoint, yes, the Jew during that time could actually have an advantage over the Gentile, especially when studying the Gospels and the Book of Acts and some of the sections that Paul wrote about. That's true. However, because of the evolutionary change that has resulted, today they can actually have a disadvantage. I know this might sound a little bit awkward because there are many people who look to me and they say, well, this is a guy who's Jewish, and so he knows the Scriptures more than anybody else does, and he can provide us with greater insights than anybody else can. Now, I understand that I have made many contributions, that the Lord has done a work within and through me in order to reveal a number of things that people have definitely benefited from. I am willing to acknowledge that. But I sincerely believe that anyone could have done this, that it doesn't require someone who is Jewish. Just because I was wanting to become a rabbi, just because I was pursuing that with my whole heart and I studied for years in order to accomplish that, 
and I wasn't able to become a rabbi because no one was willing to ordain me because I believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Just because of that does not mean that I necessarily had a greater advantage than anyone else because anyone can have access to the books that I read. Anyone can have access to the content and the material that I had available to me. If somebody wants to take several years out of their life in order to pursue the things that I pursued, then they would have the same opportunities that I had. And they don't have to be Jewish in order to do that. They only need to have the desire. They only need to have the conviction. And so I am unwilling to say, I'm totally unwilling to say, that the work that I have done has been possible because I'm Jewish. Please don't look at me in that way. And to assume that this never would have been revealed unless I did it, I think is definitely inappropriate. And you need to look at your God in a greater way because he is the one who is doing the work within and through me that he is. There's no question about that in my mind. And while I might say things like contributions that I have made, mature believers know that that's what I'm actually saying, that I have made these. However, there is no way that that would be possible outside of the divine intervention of the living God in my life. Everybody knows that who's got any sense of maturity in their Christian faith. My point is, though, that he can do that with anyone. He doesn't need a Jew to do that. He doesn't need that at all. And so there is an advantage. There is an advantage in some respects, but it doesn't mean that it is always necessary. And I want to make that clear. And so I want you to see that. I want you to understand that so that you don't look at me inappropriately as though I am an intermediary between you and your God. You, you need to turn to him. You need to learn from him. You need to listen to him through his indwelling presence within you. If you have been resurrected from the dead, he is alive, living in you. And you listen to him. He is the one who will reveal all truth to you. And while he may do a work within me, it still will have no meaning whatsoever outside of the confirmation that he will provide to verify and to confirm that what I am telling you is the truth. Without his divine intervention concerning all matters and your dependency on him, you are participating in a form of idolatry, and I do not want to be the object of that. Now, in Romans chapter 3, verse 2, he says that these are people who were entrusted with the oracles of God. In verse 2, great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment and really consider the implications of what he's saying here. He is saying something very, very important, especially when he goes on and he says that most of them did not believe. In verse 3, what then, if some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. The Jews were given the oracles of God. They were entrusted with them. Now, please understand that the Jews are the people who rejected the Messiah, who was testified of by and through the oracles of God. Now, consider this, please. Consider that the living God gave them his word, gave them his testimony, gave them his law, gave them his prophecies, and all of it, everything that he gave them, and all of his participation in their lives was for one purpose and one purpose only, and that was for the eventual revelation 
of the Messiah, the living God manifested in the flesh, who dwelt among us, who revealed to us the truth of our condition, of our depravity, and our need for his sufficiency, who provided for us forgiveness to such an extent that he could restore to us the Holy Spirit and resurrect us from the dead, make us alive to him so that we can begin to encounter him in a personal way and have a relationship with the living God of the universe, person to person, individual to individual, so that we may know him. And yet the people who he gave all of this to, for the most part, are the people who rejected him, are the people who don't want to have anything to do with him. Not in that way, not in that capacity. I find this to be very interesting to see that he trusted them with all of his testimony. He entrusted them with it all, and yet they rejected him personally. Well, I don't think that he made a bad decision. I personally don't. I don't think he made a bad decision. I think he made a very good one. He selected a people. He selected a people who were very stiff-necked, who have a strong will, who have a significant amount of pride for various reasons. He selected a group of people who would definitely be fully committed to whatever they were going to commit themselves to. And because of this type of attitude that tends to exist within this specific group of people, it is to his advantage to entrust them with his message, with the scriptures that would testify of him. Because regardless of what they believed about what he gave, regardless of whether they believed him or they didn't believe him, they would still be devoted, they would be committed to keeping it intact. That's one thing that he could definitely count on. Even though the people would not believe the testimony that he wanted to be revealed through the scriptures, through the oracles of God, even though they were unwilling to reveal the truth that was expressed there, he could still entrust them with the content itself, regardless of how they would interpret it, because they would be devoted to maintaining the integrity of it, because regardless of the interpretation, the people still acknowledge, they still believe that it was the real and living God who gave it to them. And so even though they didn't believe his message, they did believe that he gave that content to them, and so they were determined and committed to protect its integrity and ensure that it would survive the course of time. Now, I personally feel that this gives greater credibility to the content that is found within the scriptures, because if they did believe the message, if they did believe the message, it would not be as impressive to still have the scriptures available. It would not be as impressive to me because they are the keepers of the very scriptures that testify of the person who they rejected. And to me, the person who they rejected is the person who we are to know. But even though they don't know him, they are maintaining the integrity of those scriptures. If the integrity of the scriptures were maintained by individuals who did believe that Jesus is the Messiah, then there are opportunities for those scriptures to be altered. There are opportunities for changes to occur. 
And why would I say this? It's very simple, because if you take a look at the translations that we have available from the original languages that the scriptures were written in, if you take a close look at the translations that have been written, you will find that there are doctrinal biases that have been inserted within just about every translation that has been produced. And so that tells me that it is of great value to keep the integrity of the scriptures in the hands of those who reject the Messiah testified of in the scriptures in order to maintain the integrity of the message, in order to maintain the proof and the evidence that Jesus is the Messiah because it is held by a third party who has no real interest in altering the message. They do have an interest in suppressing Jesus as the Messiah, but they are unwilling to alter the text. Instead, they change their interpretations of the text in order to accommodate their rejection of Jesus. And so it is their commitment, it is their devotion that I believe the Lord foresaw, and that is why he entrusted them with it. And that has definitely been proved to be a very good decision. And I personally believe that the integrity of the scriptures will continue to be maintained by the Jews, that they can be entrusted in order to continue to copy the texts correctly, in order to maintain the texts and their integrity. You know, the procedures that they had put in place in order to copy the scriptures were very detailed in order to ensure that there would be no errors. And throughout the course of time, there has been a few occasions when we have suspected that there were some errors. There has been some missing words, there has been some misspellings, things like that. And we have maintained very careful accounts of all of those potential errors. And those have been studied very carefully. And even though we have found the corrections, the errors have been maintained in the scriptures with notations in order to show where those errors are so that we do not cause another error by making a correction. That much detail, that much effort has been put in to maintaining the integrity of the scriptures. Now, I did mention that the translations that we have in English and, of course, in other languages do have some doctrinal biases, but that does not mean that I want to encourage you not to use those. I do want to encourage you to use the translations that you have at your disposal. Whatever translation you are willing to read, read that translation. Whichever one you feel comfortable reading. I do understand that there are some discrepancies here or there. But I trust that my God will continue to reveal who he is through whatever translation you have at your disposal. That the objective is to know the one who wrote it, not the book that he wrote. And that he will direct you if you have a need for further clarification in anything that you read in the scriptures. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net